Good morning. How is everyone doing today? Good. Hope you guys are having a good finish to your weekend and rested up for the work week for those of you who are working. If you're visiting with us today, we want you to know that uh, you're a special guest and we want you to feel right at home. And uh, Arden First is a place where our mission is to lead ordinary people into extraordinary life in Christ. And we believe that God has great plans for you. Amen. This time, if you will, please pray with me. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your goodness and your love. We ask and pray that you would bless this time as we worship. We ask and pray as we look into your word that you would speak to our hearts and that we would be forever changed. We love you and we give this service to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you'll notice, we have a sign-up table over here. And during the month of September, we're encouraging everyone to get plugged in to what, whatever your next step is. So for those of you who just come on worship, we're excited you're here, but we want you to know we do have small groups. And I know some of you don't like getting up early Sunday morning. Anybody like that? Uh, we do have a group Saturday night for those of you who are not morning people. So that's led by Tom Beck. And we have 11 different groups to choose from. So we want to encourage you to, uh, at the end of the service, uh, take time to fill that out. And we're encouraging everyone during the month of September to take your next step, whatever that is. So we're going to be in the book of James, if you'll turn to chapter 2. And we've been kind of covering a lot of uh, ground in the first chapter. Uh, for those of you who've been with us, it's taken us seven weeks to get through the first chapter. Because the first chapter is kind of laid out like Proverbs. And James covers a lot of different uh, themes but in chapter 2, he covers a little bit wider range. And today's text, we're going to cover, try to cover the first 13 verses. And we're going to talk about how to avoid spiritual snobbery. Spiritual snobbery. I was reading a story about a mechanic named Jim. And uh, he was a, a guy that, you know, typical American Joe that, uh, you know, worked a lot. And he had a share of struggles. And he really was struggling with alcohol, and his wife was really upset at the time he uh, spent away with the guys. And his highlight of the week was on Wednesday night he went bowling, went to a bowling league. And that was the one time he'd have a few beers and get away. And he, know, he knew as soon as he'd come home, his wife was going to be on his case. So Jim just you know, went along with life. His marriage was unraveling. And a Christian mechanic uh, got a job working with him. And this mechanic didn't basically force the gospel on Jim, but basically lived the life. And in due time, he invited him to church. And eventually, Jim became so close with this Christian mechanic that he decided, you know what, I'm going to join the Sunday school class, and I'm going to give my life to Christ. So Jim became a believer, and all was really well, except for the Christian mechanic moved to another city. And Jim was all alone. Unfortunately, in this particular church, Nobody ever reached out to, to Jim, and no one invited him over to the house or out to eat, and he felt all alone. And sure enough, in due time, Jim went back to the bowling league. He said that was where his friends were. And the pastor of the church ran into the wife one day at the store, and he said, you know, Jim hasn't been to church in a few months. What's been going on? And the wife said something I'll never forget as I read the story. She said, well, Jim will not be back at church because he has better friends in the bowling league than he has a church. And many of you have experienced this in different churches in the past where you just don't really feel welcome. You don't really feel appreciated. Um, you feel like sometimes there's partiality. Uh, some of you have been hurt by churches in the past. 
And I got good news for you. Arden First is not that church. So we're the biggest thing I get about this church is how welcoming it is, how friendly people are. In fact, sometimes we're too friendly, which is not a bad thing. So um, today we're going to kind of give you a little preview of this message. We're going to talk about um, a certain portion of James where this particular church was struggling with favoring a certain group of people over another group of people. And if you've ever went to a church or a small group and you just felt like you didn't belong to that tribe, well, you're really going to connect with this message. And I think the Bible has a lot of encouraging things to say. So how many of you are ready to jump into the passage? Say amen. All right, we're going to be in James 2, and as I said, verses 1 through 13. It says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and then it also should come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit over here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, why don't you stand over there or sit here at my footstool? Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God bless his word. So here you have an interesting thing. You you have a certain scenario where an usher is greeting someone in perhaps... And this very wealthy, influential man shows up, and the usher is like, wow, this guy, I've seen him on the Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, and he's here visiting our church. Oh, my goodness. And then you have this other poor guy, perhaps a beggar, and it says he's wearing filthy clothes. The implication is he probably doesn't smell very good. So they are like, let's not interrupt our parishioners. Let's put him back here, or let's have him sit at the, the, our footstool, because we don't want him stinking up the joint. And James says if the usher finds himself in that situation and he he elevates the rich over the poor, he's shown partiality. In some translations, it's translated as snobbery. So today we're going to talk about how to avoid spiritual snobbery. And as we go through this text, I just want to encourage you to search your heart because as I read this, I too find myself as many passages in James, God forgive me, God help me. And James is a book that He doesn't pull any punches. He tells it like it is, but he does it in a way that's for our good. So if you'll take out your listening guide and follow along with me, a few key highlights on how to avoid spiritual snobbery. The first one is this. Don't claim to follow Jesus and not love the people that he loved. Don't claim to follow Jesus and not love the people that he loved. 
Notice it says, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Many of you have studied uh, in school Gandhi and how influential he was um, to the Hindu nation and uh, to much of uh, philosophy. And it's been said that a missionary by the name of E. Stanley Jones went to meet with Gandhi. And he said, you know, Mr. Gandhi, you quote from the Bible. You quote a lot from the Sermon on the Mount. How come you seem to appreciate Jesus' teachings, but yet you have refused to follow Christ as, as, as a believer? And Gandhi recounted something that happened to him. And we re- read from history that when he was younger and practicing law, and I believe it was South Africa, that he went to go visit a Christian church. And as he walked into the door, uh, an usher said, what are you doing here? And used a racial slur. And he said, I've come here to worship. And he said, no, we don't welcome your kind here. You better leave before I have an usher throw you down the stairs. This was at church, a Christian church. And uh, Gandhi, after that, basically said he appreciated the teachings of Jesus, but he didn't like the followers of Jesus because they were nothing like, like Christ. Later on, he said, Gandhi said, quote, he did not realize, talking about the usher, that he was ushering not just one man, but a whole country out of Christianity that day. And that that stereotype is really sad that so many times in our culture, we claim to follow Jesus, and yet we don't love the people that he loved. And James says that if you want to be a Christ follower, you have to love the people that Jesus loved. And there's seven things about Jesus' love for me and you. And these are all in your listening guide, just looking through the Gospels and the epistles. The first one is this. How how does Jesus love us? Well, Jesus loves all people. It's as simple as John 3.16 that many of you learned as a child, that God so loved the world. And the world is the people. Red, yellow, black, and white, they are precious in his sight. He loves all people. Number two, he loved us first. It says that we love God because he first loved us. That's one of the running jokes of my wife. Um, Many of you know her story. She rejected me for five months, would not date me. So finally she gave up and she started dating me. And eight years of marriage and four kids later, the joke I have is, guess what? I loved you first. You ran for five months, but eventually you you slowed down and you, you gave in. And I think God has that with us. He loved us before we even had an idea. When we were running, he was still chasing us down. Number three, he loves us sacrificially. It wasn't just a love that, look, this is sentimental, but it was sacrificial. He gave his life as an offering for us. He came to where we are so that he could take us to where he came from, to heaven, to glory. Amen. He loves those who are helpless. It says, in due time, when we were without strength, Christ died for us. Think about that. When we were without strength, when we were helpless. That passage later goes on to say that he loves, Jesus loves those who didn't love him. When we were in hostility towards God, he still loved us. And Jesus is even kind to the ungrateful and wicked. It rains on the just and the unjust. And number seven, Jesus loved us so much that he made us part of his very own family. Aren't you glad that you've been adopted to the family of God? So if this is how Jesus loves us, shouldn't we share that same love for those who are very different than us? No matter what they look like, no matter what their background is, no matter how shady their past, in this place, 
people come as imperfect individuals who have been transformed by the grace of God. Can I get uh uh-huh? So what is partiality? Partiality, basically, in the Greek and Hebrew, it means different things. In the Hebrew, it literally means the lifting of the face of another person. But in the Greek, it means to receive the face. So the idea is, I'm going to treat you better because of something that I like than I'm going to treat someone else. Now, partiality, it's sad that it exists in Christendom, but it does. Many churches, if you notice, the 11 o'clock hour is sometimes one of the most segregated hour in the whole week. And why is that? It's a good question. Many pastors and theologians have wondered why can't people from different nations, tribes, and tongues worship together? Because isn't heaven going to be that way? Every nation, tribe, and tongue will worship together. And I think if we will reach out to people in love, no matter what culture, no matter what background, no matter what their skin color is, if we reach out in love, we'll start to see people unlike us coming to worship with us. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? So everyone that you look at, whether it's going through um, the line at McDonald's, whether it's going through the shopping center at Walmart or going getting groceries at Ingalls, everyone that your eyes lay upon is someone for whom Christ died. And we are to show the utmost love and respect. Even with those who reject us, who reject the gospel, we still have to love them and reach out to them. Number two, how to avoid spiritual snobbery. Shallow people merely look at the outward exterior while spiritual people look deeper at a person's heart. So if you look at verses 2 through 4, what, what is interesting, it says, you know, what happens if this man comes into your assembly? And you notice it says he's got gold rings. This reminds me, for those of you who grew up in the 80s, you remember the Mr. T starter kit? Gold chains, gold, gold necklaces, gold rings. And in my research of the cultural background of this passage, I found out that the richer you were in this culture, the men would wear a ring on every finger except the middle finger. And if you were very rich, you would have more than one ring on each finger. So you could imagine this picture of this guy coming in the assembly. Imagine you know, wearing the Prada clothes. He's got two rings on each finger. And uh, he's got the Mr. T gold necklace coming down. And they're like, wow, this guy, I mean, he's got it going on. And you have another guy coming in, and he's barely walking, and his clothes are filthy, and you're just like, let's just be honest. Which one would you rather sit next to, the guy that smells like he just walked out of a Versace store or the guy that looks like he just came out from downtown and spent the night? I mean, it's a challenge, right? So if we put it in our own context, imagine it's Sunday morning at Arden First. There's two people that walk in late at 11.05. One is Warren Buffett, and he's in town. Many of you know Warren Buffett's one of the most wealthiest men in the world. So he walks in, and everybody recognizes this is Warren Buffett. And then also at the same time walking through the doors of Arden First is a guy that you saw downtown Asheville last night who tried to hit you up for money. And you avoided him the first time, but now he's followed you to church somehow. He got on the the city bus. They've dropped him off here at church. And you're, you're the usher for today. Are you going to give Warren Buffett or the homeless guy the best seat? <laughs> that's, that's a hard question, isn't it? And James says, listen, those who are wealthy and worldly standards, you don't know what, what's going on spiritually. And those who are poor with worldly standards, you don't know where their heart's at. 
they could be spiritually rich beyond your wildest dreams. So never judge a book by its cover. You never know who you're talking to. You guys remember the old children's song, Jesus Loves the Little Children? Red, yellow, black, and white, they're precious in his sight. I read a story this week about a little Indian girl named Mary. And um, she, she, one of her parents was Muslim and one was Baha. And she came to a missionary Sunday school class at a church, just like we have for kids. And she was reading this little booklet. And it had a little, I think it was probably like a color sheet, a Bible story for kids. And it had Jesus loves the little children. It pictured Jesus and it had children from every different nation, different skin color, sitting around Jesus. And as a little girl, she decided, I'm going to give my life to Christ. Because she realized if Jesus loves everybody, he loves me. And she gave her life to Christ that day. So something we can learn about spiritual snobbery is it favors the rich over the poor. And the thing about it is, is social classes sometimes exist outside the church, but they should never exist inside the church. What's interesting about this culture is if you were a slave owner in this particular Roman world, and we know a lot of the Roman world were slaves, uh, what was interesting in the church, your slave could actually be an elder in the church. Your slave could actually be serving you the Lord's Supper because in Christ everyone was equal. So wouldn't that be uh, so humbling to come and you have your servant there and he's your elder. He's overseeing you because he's spiritually grounded. So when James writes this, he's saying, listen, don't look at things by the exterior. You've got to look so much deeper. And something, when you think about it, is that social classes in the church should not exist. We should love everyone equally. We shouldn't favor any social group or no matter what they look like above the other, because Christ died for everyone, and the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Amen. Peter Cartwright was a, a great pastor in the American Methodist Church. And back in the early days of the Methodist Church, they had these circuit-riding preachers. Many of you have heard of them, and they would ride around. And Many of them were very fiery and just would preach the pain off the walls. So it was told to him, he came to a church in Tennessee, and they told uh, Peter Cartwright, they said, Andrew Jackson, President Andrew Jackson, is going to be in the church today. And I know you're fiery and you're evangelistic, but please, 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 mister, please don't say anything to offend the president. And I want to read you what he said uh, as soon as he got in the pulpit. He says, I hear that Andrew Jackson is in our service today. And I want to say to him that if he doesn't repent of his sins and come to Jesus, he will go to hell. <laughs> Can you imagine the audacity? What, what he was trying to say, Mr. Cartwright, is Jesus loves everyone and God doesn't show partiality. Amen. Number three, how to avoid spiritual snobbery. Something to think about. True riches are those that last beyond this lifetime, while temporary riches are just for a short time. Look at verse five. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which is promised to those who love him. So he's saying, listen, just because someone doesn't have money doesn't mean they're not wealthy. Wealth, God views wealth much differently than the world views wealth. A few things is the world looks at riches as the power to buy, while God looks at riches as the opportunity to give. The world looks at riches as having worldly security, while God views riches as having eternal security. 
The world looks at riches as being powerful, while God looks at riches as being filled with God's power. The world sees riches as having resources to make your dreams come true, while God looks at true riches as having resources to invest, not just in this lifetime, but in eternity. See, there's nothing wrong with having great wealth. The problem is when great wealth has you. There's nothing wrong with having things. The problem is when things have you. And James is not going off on rich people here. He's going off on lost rich people who find their hope in stuff and not in the Savior. If you look at verse 6, it says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do not they blaspheme that noble name by which you're called? So obviously, James is not talking about a, a saved rich person. He's talking about a lost rich person. So sometimes when you read through James, you're like, is he anti-rich? He's not anti-rich. He's anti-worldly riches that have no place in God's kingdom. So he's saying, listen, if you're building your own kingdom and you're outside the kingdom of God, what does it profit if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? What does that mean? Many of you know about Joseph Stalin, the dictator. It's been said that before he came to great power in Russia, he had a friend that was a priest. And whenever Stalin came on to be the, the emperor and the dictator, he invited his friend to come. And his friend came wearing street clothes. And Stalin looked at him and said, I, I have no respect for you, that you fear me more than you do God, not wearing your priestly robes. Something that the infamous dictator knew is that if you fear God, you don't have to fear people, no matter what kind of dictator they are. So in this society, as we read about James, it says that the people were dragging, the wealthy people were dragging the poor people into court. And something I didn't know until I further researched it is that if, say, say if you were very wealthy, a landowner, had a lot of money, and one of your debtors that wasn't willing to pay up, if you saw them in the streets, you could actually grab them by the back of their neck or by their collar, and you could drag them straight into court. And you would basically say, pay up, or you're going to be thrown into jail. So that's the imagery James saying. Do they not drag you into court? So the imagery is this. Why are you focusing on relationships that are superficial? I think a very practical thing we can, we can learn from this is that sometimes, even as Christians... We can go after the high and mighty, and we can forget the ordinary person. Romans twelve sixteen. we have the scripture for you on the, on the screen. I love this. It's really encouraging, but really convicting. It says, live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people, and don't think you know it all. So here's the picture I think James gives us. Listen, the foot is level at the cross. The, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So don't be ashamed to associate with poor people. Don't be ashamed to associate with anyone. Because everyone is someone for whom Christ died. And as Christians, we've got to love everyone equally. Amen? Or ouch. <laughs> Number four. What about the solution to spiritual snobbery? We've talked about all the, the causes of it and what it looks like. And many of us are like, wow, James is on my toes again this week. But let's look at the solution. It's lived by a different standard, the royal law. So look at verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So here's the idea. The royal law is a law that's instituted by a king. And we know this is king who? King Jesus. In John 13, 34 and 35, he tells us what the command is. A new command I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love for one another. Now, the distinction is, as I have loved you. What was Jesus getting ready to do for his disciples? He was getting ready to die for them, right? So how is this a new command? Isn't this in Leviticus, love your neighbors yourself? Yes, but the new command is as Christ is loving us, sacrificially. So what James is saying is, if you want to be liberated from spiritual snobbery, if you want to be liberated from showing prejudice, racism, whatever it may be, start loving people like Jesus loved them. It's Jesus, it's others, and then it's yourself. I joke around with some of the men. I, I do a men's group on Wednesdays, and I said, you know, you see these bracelets where it says, I am second? Do you know it's actually your third? Because it's Jesus, it's others, and then it's you. You're not second, but you're third. And when we start thinking that way, it begins to change the way we live our lives. But what does partiality mean? Let's look at partiality. If you look at your listening guide, it means to discriminate. To treat some people better than others because of your own personal bias or interests. If you show partiality in how you love others, then you and I are guilty of spiritual snobbery, of partiality. Now, have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a church where because of what you're wearing, whether you're dressed up or dressed down, and you just felt that you didn't feel the love in the place? And what James is saying is, listen, God loves you just the way you are. But he loves you too much to keep you that way. And wherever we meet people, we've got to love them just as they are and trust that God's love and God's truth will transform them to what they want him to be, to what they want him to become. Amen. So there's one misunderstanding in this text I want to clear up. If you look at verse 10, it says, if you, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point is guilty of, the, of it all. And it says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, um, you have become a transgressor of the law. So here, here's what I've heard people say. Well, in one law, you've broken every law, all right? Have you ever heard people say that? I've heard people say that. I don't think James is saying that. I think he's saying, to get to heaven, you have to have a hundred score. And if you've broken one law, you're a lawbreaker, you're a transgressor. It's not that if, you know, I've... Uh, not committed adultery, but I've lied, then I've committed every sin there is. I've, I've committed that sin, so I've broken God's law. I'm imperfect. So I've heard people use this as a rationale to, well, if you're going to sin, you're going to sin because you've broken them all. And that's kind of a license to sin. And James is not saying that. He's saying, listen, if you've broken one law, you're a lawbreaker and you need forgiveness. So since it's back to school, we have how many school teachers do we have in here? I know we've got a few school teachers. I'm going to give you a school teaching illustration. Imagine the perfect kid in the school, the kid that scores like the perfect hundred, the teacher's pet that, you know, you kind of don't like this kid because they're so smart. They sit on the front row. They always ask the questions. The kids throw the spit wads in the back. You guys know who I'm talking about, especially Donnie and Maida teaching all those years. Um, so imagine the perfect kid and imagine that kid that you had, for those of you who are retired school teachers, that still haunts your memory to this day. The kid that got out of school suspension almost every month. The kid that cursed out the teacher. That kid. Now imagine if that kid was a little bit more intelligent 
than they were crazy. And they got in the, the t- principal's office. And digitally, they, they knew how to hack into the computer. And they switched transcripts from the kid that was going to be the valedictorian to the kid that was the dropout. Switched transcripts. What would happen? All of a sudden, this kid that was just horrible grades, horrible SAT, horrible everything on their mark, now has like this record of hard to find a flaw. Imagine the college that kid could get into. Imagine the possibilities that would open up. Now, here's the picture. You and I, even if you just committed one sin, it takes a perfect hundred to get to heaven. And looking around, none of us pass that. So Jesus came to earth. God, the eternal Son of God, took upon him a human body, and he lived that perfect life that you, you and I couldn't live. So if we receive Christ into our life, what happens? There's a transcript exchange. We, we get the transcripts of Jesus Christ, perfect in every way, put into our account. So every time God accesses our files, he sees perfect. That's why Paul can say in Colossians that through Christ, we are pure, blameless, and without fault. So the kid that has all these things against him or her now becomes pure, now becomes blameless, now becomes without fault. Can I get an uh-huh? So what is the goal, goal of the law? I'm glad you asked that question because it's very simple. It's love. James says, so speak and so act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? goes back up to verse 8. The law of love, love your neighbor as yourself. So here's how to overcome spiritual snobbery. You begin to love people as Jesus loved them. Now, many of you sitting here today have been hurt. I brought up a school illustration. Some of you, you remember back 40, 50, 60 years ago school, and you have hurts of what people and teachers and pastors and Sunday school teachers did. I want to tell you a true story that really bothered me. It was about a woman named Margaret. And uh, when she was nine years old, she had something traumatic happen to her in school. And this is like 40 years later, she's talking to a Christian counselor. She had a teacher named Mrs. Gardner, and they didn't get along. And somehow Mrs. Gardner believed in publicly shaming the the children that misbehaved. So after recess, um, Margaret did something that Mrs. Gardner did not like. So she called Margaret in front of the whole class and said, Margaret obviously doesn't know how to obey so we need to teach her a lesson. And I kid you not, there were 25 students. She had the students come up and write something bad about Margaret on the chalkboard. So one by one, they, they wrote on the board, Margaret is stupid. Margaret is fat. Margaret is a dummy. And these words haunted her for the next 40 years. Her soul was tortured that what these kids wrote. That, that imagery and that teacher and that chalkboard still haunt her it's up to this point. The Christian counselor said something that just spoke volumes to me. He said, I'm so sorry for what happened. I want you to close your eyes now and visualize. There was another person in the room that you didn't see. Jesus was in the room. And I want you to see what he's writing on the chalkboard. Margaret is loved. Margaret is my child. Margaret is gentle. Margaret is kind. Margaret has great courage. That's what the Lord thinks of you. The last verse, let me close with this. It says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So what James does, he wraps it up and says, listen, if you're guilty of partiality, that's one thing. 
But if you take partiality the next thing and you become judgmental, you become critical, if you show no mercy, guess what's going to happen on Judgment Day? The same mercy that you use will be the same standard used back to you. Now, granted, once you're forgiven, you're forgiven. But there's rewards, there's loss of rewards, there's all these things that happen in heaven. So it's not a matter of eternal security in the line, but it's a matter of rewards, loss rewards. I have a quote from John Corson. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor. And I think this does a good job to summarize it. He says, if you are merciful to others, if you are forgiving toward others, if you are kind and compassionate with others, then when you need mercy and you need kindness and you will, it will be given to you. But if you have been harsh and judgmental, if you have been fault-finding, and I love this, sin-sniffing, don't be a sin-sniffer. When you need mercy from others, there will be none for you. So in conclusion, many of us have been hurt by people in our past. Today is the day to forgive them. Today is the day to let go. Because there's another voice in the room, the voice of Jesus saying, I love you. You're special. You're beautiful. You're intelligent. I have a plan for you. But there's also another voice of, of, of the Lord speaking to us and saying, if you have been guilty of sin sniffing, if you've been judgmental, if you've been critical, yes, the truth never changes. But Jesus said, by what? People know your mind disciples, by your love. So many of us are great at the truth, but we're not that great at love. So the challenge for those of us who struggle with judging others would be, you know what, you know the truth, but are you loving people like Jesus loved them? Let's pray together. Father, your word's so powerful, and it changes us. Father, I ask and pray that as we think about this passage, that what we'll take home is that we will live a life of love. Love for God, love for others. And right now, Father, as we're praying, we just want to offer a a confession. And I ask all the believers just in your own hearts, if you've been guilty of spiritual snobbery, showing partiality, favoritism based upon race, based upon socioeconomic status, or whatever it may be, that you would just say a prayer right where you're at and say, God, forgive me. I realize I need to do better with loving everybody, not just the people that I like. And as the believers are praying, if there be someone that's a seeker today and you've never given your life to Christ, right where you're sitting, to say, Jesus, I need you in my life. I realize that you died on the cross and you were buried and you rose on the third days from my sin. And Jesus, I want to ask and pray that you would forgive me of all my sins. I found out today I have to score a perfect hundred to get to heaven and I'm not perfect. But Jesus... I realize you are. So I pray that you would step out of heaven and into my heart. I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. I need that exchange, my unrighteousness for your righteousness, so that I can live the life that you've always wanted me to live. And as everyone continues to pray, if you've been hurt by someone in your past, whether it be a teacher, a pastor, uh, someone in your life that spoke negative words, just as you're praying, just if you allow me to speak the word of God over your life and say, I'm so sorry that this person did that to you. Forgive them. And right now, I want you to hear the voice of Jesus saying that you are loved, that in Christ you're accepted, that you're beautiful, that God has a great plan for you. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak these words to our spirits.
and help our lives to be forever changed. And all God's children said, Amen. This time, if you'll please stand for a closing